so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jordan Baylor, who's the Director of Research at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, as well as the co-editor of Abraham Kuyper's Collected Works in Public Theology from Lexham Press. Today, we talk about the life and work of Abraham Kuyper, as well as the task of public theology and Christian ethics today. Dr. Baylor earned his Doctorate of Theology in Reformation History from the University of Zurich and his PhD in Moral Theology from Calvin Theological Seminary. In addition to his role at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, he's also the Associate Director of the Junius Institute for Digital Reformation Research at Calvin Theological Seminary. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Baylor, thank you so much for joining us today on the Digital Public Square podcast. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about what led you and kind of what was your interest in studying public theology and moral theology, and specifically your interest in Abraham Kuyper? Yeah, thanks, Jason, for having me on. I started as a a master's student doing an MTS at Calvin Seminary here in Grand Rapids, and that was where I first got to know the neo-Calvinist tradition, the Dutch Reformed tradition. At the time, Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink, they were pictures up on the wall in one of the classrooms. You know, I, I was had grown up Church of Christ, and then at the time, actually, that I started at Calvin was Lutheran, you know, knew a little bit about the Reformed tradition, uh, but obviously got to know a lot more there. And that was really where I was introduced to this whole world and life view, and then the personalities and figures that stood behind it at the in, at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries, especially Kuiper and Bavink. So that was sort of my introduction to it, that tradition, about 20 years ago, really, actually, from from this year. So, you know, that that's what got me introduced to them. And then when I was working part-time while I was doing grad study and, and grad work in theology at the Acton Institute, that really was a place where this connection between theology and everyday life and political concerns and economic concerns and concerns about poverty and social justice and all these things kind of came together. So there's a natural connection there. And then over the years, I got to know more and more about the tradition. And eventually, uh, those interests developed into this research project and this large translation project, too. So that's that's a kind of a thumbnail sketch of 
of how I got to to be introduced to Kuiper. Yeah, it's a wonderful series. And I'm really glad to be able to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit about it and your hard work that you've done. It's interesting to me over the last few decades, we've seen kind of a resurgence, especially in this, the formal study of public theology. It's not that people or theologians and ethicists of the past didn't talk about public theology. They're just maybe not using that type of terminology or those that language. It's really seen a resurgence. And so it's been encouraging to see a lot of volumes and works come out, especially this whole series being a 12-volume collection of Abraham Kuyper's works in public theology. With the recent publication of On Charity and Justice, you officially completed the 12-volume series from Lexham, uh, which we'll be able to link to in the show notes if folks want to check it out. There's a discount code there to get, save some money on this wonderful series. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of the series specifically? Obviously, not all of these things were had been translated into English. There's a lot of translation that has to go into it. Um, and then kind of packaging in this 12 volumes. What's the story behind it? Kind of how did it come about? And what was your role as a series editor? Yeah, so the original vision was actually to translate the three volumes on Common Grace. And so that started, that got started about 12 years ago with a colleague of mine at Acton and some of the other people that we were associated with and had done work with. Um, that was really the vision. And the idea there was to reappropriate a traditionally reformed, but an influential more broadly for evangelicals understanding of the relationship between created nature and saving grace and the implications of that for Christian discipleship, but also engagement with the world more broadly outside of the, say, the institutional church. So that was the original vision was to kind of bring back into circulation, put Kuiper in his own words, as opposed to say, you know, a slogan version of Kuiper or you know, a, a version of Kuiper as translated over the past hundred years through different figures and so on, really get back to the source, some of the original sources himself, and learn from those what Kuiper actually said, what he didn't say, what he recognized about the strengths and weaknesses of his own view and so on. And so that was the original vision. And so those three volumes together would have been, you know, something on the order of 750, 800,000 words, if not a little bit more translated in English. There were pieces of it that had been done, but never the whole thing. And as we got working on this project, we got connected with more and more people who either had an interest in Kuiper and neo-Calvinism or were interested in new translation work or editing work. And there was a much broader community that we started to get connected with. And the thing that you know sort of developed organically into a much larger project, we got connected with some funders, especially Rimmer DeVries, who has since passed away, but he was a, a patron of the project, both in terms of financially and um morale. He was always a great encourager to do more and more and more, um, as well as institutional support. So there are a number of higher educational institutions that helped support it as things got going. So it grew and grew. And then we sort of ended up with this thing that providentially turned into you know a nice round number 12 <laughs> volume series. So I can talk a little bit more about the, the construction of the series from that perspective. But yeah, it really did start about 12 years ago, really focusing on on those bringing those three volumes of Common Grace into English translation for the first time. So were most of the volumes untranslated at the time, or these kind of been repackaged, or was a combination of kind of all of it? You know, I would say 95% or more of the 12 volumes are in English for the first time. Or if they're not, they're redone. They're either... Now, there are different examples. So one would be a piece that had appeared previously under the title of The Problem of Poverty. This is a famous speech that Kuiper gave to open the Christian Social Congress in 1891 in Amsterdam. Now, there's a nice reader's kind of version of that that, has been, that had been in English before. 
but it had excised a lot of the footnotes. So we put out a version of that that included all of Kuiper's original footnotes, which don't make it that readable, but they do make it helpful if you're interested in kind of sourcing the conversations that he was involved with at the time across different traditions and across the European continent and so on. So that's an example of one that, you know, there was a version of that in English, for example, but we've, we've, we retranslated it and put it out in a kind of comprehensive form. So there are a few examples of that, but really most of them are in English for the first time. Yeah, it's a really monumental achievement. So congratulations on that. I know that's a long project. You said you've been working on it for over 12 years. So it's nice to kind of put a bow on that. I know a lot of our listeners may be familiar with Kuiper and kind of the larger Dutch reform movement. We just recently had uh, Robert and Jessica Justra on the podcast talking about their new book, um, especially the Stone Lectures of Kuiper and kind of talking about some overarching themes. Obviously, we could spend more than a podcast, probably more than a semester on just a couple different themes, much less, you know, the 12 different volumes of the series. So it's, we have an ambitious task before us uh, today. But one, one of the things, just to kind of pull it down to kind of some entry-level things, what are some of these overarching themes that we see throughout Kuiper's works that you think are really important? If you're going to walk away with two or three different ideas, what are some things that you really think kind of set Kuiper apart in terms of public theology and ethics? So I would start with Common Grace, which is why we, we were going to open with those volumes. I mean, Kuiper does have a really sophisticated and nuanced and I think constructively helpful doctrine of Common Grace. He understood it. He acknowledged it as being innovative in some way, but he thought he argued that it was innovative within the spirit of the Reformed tradition and actually, you know, made the case in the second volume that this has direct grounding in the confessional traditions of the Reformed faith. So, And yet he said this was a lacuna that needed to be developed and be more explicitly articulated, and that's where he wanted to step in and fill the gaps. This idea that in addition to the emphasis on special grace, we need a, a proper understanding of God's intentions in creation and his ongoing graciousness to all of what exists is really foundational for Kuiper's thinking. The phrase grace restoring nature is, is a popular way of kind of um, framing that relationship for Kuiper and Bavink, especially the two of them, as articulating that kind of view. So I would definitely start with, with common grace. Now, you always have to, along with common grace and the kind of positive understanding of God's purposes for creation, have to take into account the reality of sin and the fact of sin. So another characteristic feature of Kuiper's thinking is, is what's often called the antithesis. That is, after a fall into sin, there is a sharp distinction between those who are the people of God and those who are not. And so the antithesis and common grace need to go together, and you have to hold those two truths and realities together, often in tension or even conflict, but do, do justice to both of these dimensions or aspects of, of reality as we live in a fallen and reconciled uh, to some degree and, you know, ever more reconciled world. So those are two of the key kind of starting points. He's also, to the extent that he's famous for any of these kinds of technical <laughs> phrases, um, known for this idea of sphere sovereignty, which is, I think, best understood as a, as a characteristically Protestant or even reformed articulation of how God's authority and majesty and sovereignty exists and is mediated through different institutions and spheres of influence and um, structures of authority and so on in the world. So sphere sovereignty is another really important point for Kuiper. He's also been inspirational for, for various thinkers and theorists of pluralism, given 
both his kind of theoretical contributions to how Christians can live fruitfully in a plural society, as well as practically speaking from some of the examples and uh, institutions he helped start and so on. So those are three of the kind of the key things that I tend to think about first with respect to Kuiper. There's a lot more. So one of the things that are remarkable about him is just how productive he was in a variety of spheres. And Rich Mao talks about Kuiper as being a kind of a theologian writing on the run. You know, he was so busy. And that comes through in a lot of these works. He he um, originally wrote some of these pieces for newspapers. They were editorials, and then he would collect those together and sell them to you again in book form. So he's, you know, entrepreneurial in that sense, too. So there's a kind of an occasional element to a lot of his reflections. But one of the things that I've always found helpful about Kuiper is that he thought about almost everything. And everything he thought about, he tended to think about in a pretty deep way. So it's not that there's nothing to disagree with or he didn't make mistakes or you know, there are problems with some aspects of his thought and so on, but he's, he's almost always worth reading. You learn something from engaging with him, even if you end up disagreeing with him or saying, well, he's, he made a, a bad move here and so on, or, or wow, that's really resonates. Um, and, or I never thought about something quite that way before. Those kinds of moments happen all the time when you're reading him. Yeah, I know. Obviously, you mentioned three kind of themes there. Obviously, there are hundreds and hundreds of things we could talk about. I do want to drill down a little bit on the doctrine of common grace. Obviously, that's kind of the one of the foundational doctrines to his entire theological and ethical enterprise, especially in evangelical and reformed circles. There's kind of a resurgence of conversation surrounding natural theology or natural law ethics, creation ethics. And you see that, and obviously these terms each have their own nuances and kind of emphases and things, but how would you help us to understand kind of the role of creation in God's created order and nature, especially in light of some of these conversations about the acceptance or rejection of like natural law ethics per se and Thomas Aquinas and kind of the Roman Catholic moral tradition? How, how do you think Kuiper can helps us think wisely about some of those debates today? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we could have a whole podcast just on that. So I'll try to do my best to answer briefly. Kuiper's really important in this regard. He's living and working at a time when these different confessional traditions are becoming increasingly uh, divergent. So it's not to say that there's no common kind of moral teaching in terms of substance that you could point to between, say, Roman Catholics and the Dutch Reformed or the Reformed tradition in the 19th century. Kuiper himself, actually, in that same 1891 speech, is in a way kind of responding to the papal encyclical Rerum Novarum that had come out earlier in that year from Leo XIII, and saying, basically recommending the substance of Rerum Novarum to his Dutch Reformed audience, you know, and saying that on the substance of many of these social teachings with respect to the moral order, you know, we're in agreement with Roman Catholics here. Obviously, there are things that we disagree about, but in terms of many of these common points of, of contention in our world today, there's, there's much overlap and we can learn a lot. At the same time, I would say especially subsequent, so in the time since Kuiper and Bavink, but there are even definitely um, trends in that direction at the time. You've got an, a decreasing emphasis on rooting your identity, say, in the Reformed or the Protestant tradition more generally, with a kind of understanding of Catholicity with a small c. So there's a greater willingness to sort of say, oh, you know, this is obviously a generalization, but to have the kind of posture that, you know, Aquinas, who's being rehabilitated in the 19th century for Roman Catholics, oh, well, he's a Catholic because they're claiming him. And actually, we don't even, you know, have anything to learn from him anyway. So 
you can have him basically. And you see similar sorts of moves with all kinds of other doctrines or moral teachings or traditions. So it's not the case that Kuiper talks about natural law all the time, for example. Uh, he prefers different terminology. But there's definitely a coherence between what you could understand as a kind of Catholic natural law tradition with a small c and what Kuiper's talking about in the Doctrine of Common Grace. And it's more explicit even, it's definitely explicit in Kuiper, but it's also much more developed in a figure like like Hermann Bavinck and his Reformed Ethics, which is just coming out now too. So that's one piece of the story in terms of this, this I would say, divergence and antipathy that you, you see in the 20th century between many Protestant traditions and Protestant thinkers in natural law, for example. And obviously the question of Thomism and the figure of Thomas Aquinas and the, his relationship to the Reformation and post-Reformation periods is all part of this too, or another kind of example of that dynamic. But there are definitely those who, who you know, would radically separate uh, the neo-Calvinist tradition from a natural law tradition and define it, those two things in, in opposition. And that may be true to, to some extent for later neo-Calvinists, but it's really not the case for Kuiper and Bavink. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. So I've done a lot more work in reading in Bavink than I have in Kuiper. Um, especially with ethics. So a little bit in his reformed dogmatics, especially in his reformed ethics, as you said, is just coming out. And now that the volume two is officially out, and I know they're working on the third volume now. Um, but it is really interesting to me because even in figures like Carl F.H. Henry, you see a cre- he calls it a creation ethic. And so there's almost this uh, subtle rejection of natural law tradition, you know, capital C Catholic. But at the same time, those concepts are being employed with new language in just kind of a different context. And so it's a really fascinating conversation to me. Um, And I think one that's worth evangelicals, especially just broadly Protestants, stepping in and talking about these things is I think they're very valuable. Obviously, there's nothing salvific in the creation, uh, in this kind of creation ethic per se, um, but it's being sharpened and we're seeing those things kind of play out, especially in special revelation. So I think there's this beautiful relationship and I'm glad to see more scholars kind of stepping into that, that being taught in a lot of our schools and seminaries about the value of the created order um, and how God spoke and speaks uh, through the created order as well as in special revelation. Yeah, you've touched there on an important dynamic, which is, I think, you know, in the explicit rejection of something like natural law, you almost end up having to affirm it in substance and call it something different. And you see that uh, I've done work on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Lutheran tradition. You have similar dynamics there. We're talking about Kuiper and the Reformed tradition, but you have similar dynamics in the early 20th century among Lutherans in the context of the Bart Brunner debate and other sorts of things. So, you know, it may be that you prefer to call something... um, a mandate as opposed to a law, or you want to talk about creation order and oppose that to natural law. And it's not that there isn't any distinctiveness between, say, a a reformed or Kuyperian understanding of the relationship between created nature and saving grace as opposed to a Roman Catholic one. There are differences, but they are all, I would argue, varieties or um, different versions of something within a, a great natural law tradition broadly understood. So it's not that, you know, you have to, by making the claim that, you know, there's a there's a version of natural law teaching that's in consonant with the Protestant Reformation and the, and the magisterial reformers, that therefore you affirm, you know, a distinctively Roman Catholic version of it. Actually, I think that's giving too much, ceding too much ground to Roman Catholic claims to just say, oh, they're the natural law people or, or Thomas Aquinas is theirs and we don't, 
have anything to learn from him. Again, that doesn't mean you affirm everything Thomas wrote either. So that would be the kind of argument that I would make. It and and you can definitely point and see specific examples of this. Some of which you've already talked about in terms of Henry and other 20th century Protestants who end up having to affirm the substance of something like natural law while for rhetorical or other reasons having already rejected the terminology. Yeah. And that's not to say, as you mentioned already, that there's nothing nuanced or kind of unique about maybe not at a complete acceptance of everything from the natural law tradition. I see this especially with the doctrine of sin. I mean, you mentioned this earlier. It's kind of one of the overarching themes within Kuiper's work. I think even Henry at times would differ with a kind of a Roman Catholic conception of the fall and the extent of the fall. Um, And so sometimes that word nature uh, is a stumbling block for some, especially when you're talking about natural law, kind of the creation ethic that Henry likes to talk about. Well, uh, kind of staying on the ethics track, um, specifically the latest volume in this series is on charity and justice, which in many ways is kind of the moral application of the doctrine of common grace um, and kind of the culmination of this entire project. So can you give readers kind of an overview of some of the themes in the way that Kuiper specifically addresses kind of a lot of the moral questions of the day, not only in his own context, but kind of articulating this for the the Reformed tradition? Yeah, so one of the things Kuiper was always sensitive to and keen to do in terms of his own self-understanding was to apply the perennial insights of the Christian and especially his Reformed tradition to the contemporary challenges that he saw that faced the church and the people of God and this broader society in his day. In this final volume, we tried to bring together a number of different treatises and excerpts and other essays and speeches and things that he had done that speak to this kind of dynamic, right? Bringing the gospel to bear on all areas of, of life in a number of the other institutional spheres or topics or things that we hadn't touched on in some of the, the earlier volumes. So there's a, an emphasis here on economics, on politics, uh, on kind of the liberal or the free society. This is the volume where we've got a new translation of his famous sphere sovereignty speech, for example, that's included in this final volume. Also, um, you know, one of the things that that's remarkable about Kuiper is, you know, how many different roles and all the different things that he did, all the different institutions he helped found or build. Uh, among those were two different newspapers that he basically led through his adult life, Religious Weekly and a Political Daily. And he served as an editor. He served as actually the head of the, the press association, the Dutch Press Association for a while. And so we included some essays and things that he had written on questions of free speech, uh, the role of the press in a free society, uh, and these sorts of things that you now, it's new, certainly, you know, say from the 16th to the 19th century, it's a new development socially. Social life has become much more complex and multiform, you know, than it would have been in in an early modern or certainly medieval context. So he's addressing all these different areas, including the relationship, say, of the family to the state and society. That's another one of the pieces that's in here. So that's really what we tried to capture in this final volume was, was to give a glimpse of Kuiper's direct engagement across a wide variety of spheres other than, say, the church and government and some of the other you know, topics that we had talked about in, in some of the earlier volumes. Yeah, that's one of the things that's pretty fascinating to me about Kuiper and even Bobbing, for that matter, is that's just the the plethora of roles that they served in the areas. I mean, um, we had Dr. James Eglinton on the podcast last year talking about his new uh, biography of Bob Inc., and he talks about Bob Inc. being a polymath. 
Um, and often that term is just applied to someone who's, you know, pretty knowledgeable in a few areas. But both of these men, especially Kuiper, were extremely knowledgeable in so many different areas and wore so many different hats. They weren't just theologians. They weren't just professors. Uh, they were serving in government and journalism and all of these different areas. And so it's just fascinating to read someone like this. Uh, because it's you see all these insights into so many aspects of our public and social life, as you mentioned. Um, I know one of the big questions, at least that I have, and one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you on the podcast today about Kuiper, is especially when we talk about the nature of ethics or nature of morality, often one of the biggest questions that comes up, that rightfully comes up, are questions of human dignity um, and the human nature, and even especially kind of the rise of uh, human rights talk not just kind of in the later 19th and 20th century when we're talking about human rights, but this is really the environment in some senses that Kuiper and Bob Vink and others, they're going through massive cultural shifts on their own. And we have as well, especially since. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how Kuiper talked about human dignity, um, because that's not only central to the theological, but also the ethical enterprise. And specifically, did he have any kind of insights into this kind of shift, modern shift into the discussion of human rights? Yeah, so Kuiper, um, in conjunction with some of the things we've been talking about with respect to, say, his understanding of common grace, I, I would say definitely affirms human dignity. And he makes the kind of classical moves that, that you often see that is connecting that to the image of God, that uh, all human beings are created within and sustained within, even if they are still sinners. So there's a kind of an objective ontic status that attends to human beings, qua human beings, regardless of whether they're fallen or redeemed or, you know, what their salvific state is that Kuiper definitely affirms. You know, the, the editor of this final volume, his name is Matthew Tuninga. Uh, he's a professor of moral theology at Calvin Seminary here in Grand Rapids. And his introduction makes, makes the case for understanding Kuiper and his, this kind of moral and social vision as a, a variety of what could be called a Christian liberalism. Now, obviously, that's a very loaded and weighted term, but if you strip it of, of many of the negative connotations or um, if you um, take away some of the kind of claims about liberalism in terms of its logical entailments and how it must necessarily manifest in terms of secularism and so on, I think that's a very strong case to be made that, that this is a, essentially what could be called a kind of Christian liberal understanding of the dignity of the human person, uh, the rights of people, and so on. Now, the key for Kuiper is all, that these rights are always, in some sense, relative. At the very basic level, um, even in the doctrine of something like sphere sovereignty, right, he would say only God has absolute sovereignty because to have absolute sovereignty, you must have, have all these characteristics, right? You have to have created the thing. Um, you have to have the power to manipulate it and so on. And you can see human beings in the image of God have some analogous kinds of capacities to what God has with respect to the created order over certain aspects of creation. But in no sense do we have absolute sovereignty, so our sovereignty is always derived and derivative and relativized with respect to God. And the same would be true for a corresponding understanding, say, of rights. You know, only God has absolute right. <laughs> and and um, human beings have right insofar as God has created them and endowed them with that kind of moral and ontological status. And so it's always relativized in that sense. It's also relativized horizontally. 
right? So you never have the power to ward your sovereignty or your rights over someone else in some kind of a tyrannical way. So he would definitely affirm rights, right? And say, you know, in that sense, you have to recognize them and do justice to them. But they're never an absolute claim that stands on their own that are unconditioned by other aspects of reality. And he would first start with that creator-creature distinction and the distinction between absolute and relative sovereignty, for example. Another example, uh, you know, one way you could think about this working out concretely for Kuiper is within his context, he argued for what you might call a much more progressive or inclusive form of democratic representation politically. So he wanted to expand the franchise. He wanted to uh, sort of loosen the restrictions on who was able to vote in the Netherlands based on their status as a property holder. And that was, you know, relative to the the law at the time or the way things were done at the time. And to some extent, he would root that in what you might consider kind of classical liberal arguments. On the other hand, he was very clear that this idea of popular sovereignty, which was, you know, dominant in much of the ideological discourse of the time, was at best a kind of a misunderstanding of the way that sovereignty is derived. And in in no sense do people have this kind of radically absolute and autonomous ability of self-determination, whether individually or, or politically, to simply create de novo whatever they want. It's always, again, derived from this kind of divine mandate and divine authority. So it's not the case that you couldn't say there's a, a kind of secondary causality that you could respect in popular sovereignty, but the idea that you can only have a just government if certain conditions for democratic representation are met and those end up having to be as radically democratic as possible, that to, to Kuiper is a, is a confusion of along the lines of what we've been talking about, you know, confusing some sort of relative right with an absolute claim that's totally independent and autonomous. Yeah, I think that's really the key. I mean, this is something, obviously, other reform thinkers, including even Cornelius Van Til, talking about the rise of the autonomous man. I mean, that's kind of, it's revolutionized in many ways the way I think about ethics, because when you cut off concepts of rights or even dignity from their God-given status, that these are God-given rights, or even see with like John Locke, where it's, you know, God-given reason, and now it's just autonomous reason. It's not God-given anymore. You cut God out of the picture things go awry very quickly. And I think you see that, especially in a lot of the current discussions on human rights. I mean, even today is human rights are, it's all about the free autonomous human being and their supposed rights. But as Jacques Maritain said, talking about the Universal Human Rights Declaration is we all agree that these rights exist, just don't ask us why. Uh, Because if you ask us why, that's where we all, we completely disagree across the board, but we we acknowledge that these rights exist. And we can say that's an element of common grace, Uh, maybe not to pull Kuiper in specifically to it, but to say this is an element of kind of the created order in some sense that we recognize these rights are present, but we don't always agree on the same foundations. And so I actually do think that this is, this is an aspect of the current discourse where, you know, we're a hundred and hundred years on from when Kuiper died, he passed away in 1920. So it's just over a hundred years since he died or a hundred plus years on from his engagement with many of these questions. And so we're at the, the other end of an arc, you could say a trajectory of many of these kinds of arguments. Now, of course, he and his, his mentor, Grun von Prinster looked back and saw many of these dynamics at play in the French revolution. So 
you know, he was kind of at a middle point between, say, us and the French Revolution, where you could you could check in and say, well, how how are things going with that revolutionary liberalism and that that sense of the autonomous human being, you know, uh, progressively liberating himself from all constraints, both internal and external. And Kuiper, with respect to that kind of an anthropology, was was very pessimistic, obviously, and very critical. And we can see many of those you know those same trends having um, continued and become more and more uh, radical and extreme and uh, in their expression now. So, yeah, there's a difference certainly between a kind of a, a revolutionary liberalism, as Kuiper would talk about it, and the kind of more chastened. <laughs> humbler affirmation of human dignity uh, that is more consistent with, say, an Orthodox Christian understanding of the human person, which he would affirm. Well, as we've already talked about a little bit, um, he wrote, I mean, even within this series, there's kind of a wide-ranging set of issues. You go from common grace and his political manifesto, you have ethics in this last volume, morality, even issues of the church and education and politics and economics and even Islam. So I think that when people look at this series, they're going to be like, man, one, it's very colorful and it's beautiful on your shelf if you have the hardback edition. Um, but it's uh, one of those things that it's it's so wide ranging. So can you speak to some of that diversity within um, his thought and kind of why he's, I mean, obviously this is a collection of works. This isn't something that Kuiper set out to say, here, I'm going to write a 12 volume series type of thing. And but more so, like, why did you include certain writings? Was it just the inaccessibility of them at the time? Or is there kind of a common theme of seeing how all this plays together, especially in some, at times, what seemed to be kind of divergent type of topics? Yeah, so one thing I'll say, just as a kind of preface in terms of answering that question, is the 12 volumes that we have in this series, I estimate they're they're on the order of two and a half million words in English. So some of the volumes are are longer, some of them are a little bit shorter, but you know you've got it's a substantial amount of text that that's coming over into English for the first time, at least in this form. And yet it's still just a, a kind of a sample of what Kuiper himself wrote. There's a there's a multi-hundred page volume that the Dutch publisher Brill put out that is simply a an annotated bibliography of all of Kuiper's writings to the extent they could find them at the time of publication. So um he wrote a lot, and this is a, what we tried to have as a representative sampling of the, of the comprehensiveness and the complexity and diversity of everything that he wrote about. Now, with that being said, there were kind of anchor pieces in our uh, vision of the series. So certainly the trilogy on Common Grace, those are three of the volumes. About 15 years later, he wrote another trilogy called Pro Rega, or For the King. And this complements Common Grace in the sense that it was written about a decade and a half later, Uh, He covers many of the same topics, you know, family, society, politics, the household, things like that. And instead of arguing, say, for example, in terms of affirming common grace from a doctrinal or historical perspective, now he's really focused more on what do these mean? What does our does our understanding of, you know, the right approach to these areas mean for our faithfulness and discipleship today? So he's focused on what what does it mean to live for the king in all of these different spheres of society. That's another trilogy. So the between the two of those works, Pro Reg and Common Grace, that's you know six of the twelve volumes. The other six we try to do kind of thematic representations of these different spheres. So one is called Our Program. That's his commentary on the manifesto of the political party that he helped found, the anti-revolutionary party. The revolutionary that they're opposing there is the French Revolution, which you've already mentioned. So that's his early 
manifesto, uh, political philosophy and political manifesto. You mentioned the volume on education. He was an important reformer uh, with respect to politics, but also the practice of religious education. He founded a university, the Free University in Amsterdam, uh, and was an advocate for a particular kind of uh, funding scheme that would do justice to the diversity of worldviews and religious traditions in the Netherlands. So there's a volume on education, for example. On the church, he's an important church reformer. He helped lead um, an exodus from the, the kind of established, with a small e, reformed denomination and, and form a new denomination. So, you know, as a churchman and a church politician, uh, he was an important reforming figure as well. He helped argue for uh, a revision of the reformed teaching on church and state at the confessional level, for example, arguing for a free and rather than an established church. So that's another one of the volumes that we thought you have to do something about Kuiper and the church, given the influence of his views, as well as, you know, what he worked on. And so that's really how these other volumes came together. You know, Peter Heslam, who edited the volume on business economics, said basically, you know, if Kuiper were to give the Stone Lectures today, he undoubtedly would have one on economics and business. You know, he didn't among the <laughs> among the ones that he gave when he came over in 1898 to give the Stone Lectures. But if he were going to do it today, he would talk about commerce and these sorts of realities and the power that they have. So those were the motivations for putting together what, what in many cases were essentially thematic anthologies of writings from across his career, a variety of different genre. We included things from devotional writings to speeches to treatises to editorials and so on to try to give as best of a comprehensive sense as we could of the breadth and the depth of, of Kuiper's thinking in all these areas. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about this series, you know, obviously it's so wide-ranging in terms of the number of topics addressed, but even you yourself are very kind of eclectic in some sense and the, the area is not only in your education, but also a lot of your interest areas. So Kuiper is just one of kind of the areas that you focused on, especially in a lot of your work. Um, so to shift gears a little bit away from Kuiper, I mean, obviously we could spend multiple podcasts just talking about Kuiper, but I'd love to hear some of the projects that you're working on right now. I know you've done some work, especially on Adam Smith and Theology and Morality. I'm just talking a little bit about some of the other works that you have, um, and we'll make sure to link to kind of your portfolio and a lot of your works in our show notes as well. But for listeners' sake, uh, what are some projects that you're currently working on right now? Yeah, thank, thanks for that. I, I mean, and that is one reason I find Kuiper inspiring. In no sense do I, you know, have a, a perception that I'm doing anything like he was doing, but I do have a lot of different interest areas. And anything I'm interested in, I can find something that Kuiper's talked about and learn from there. So that is one of the reasons I, I was excited to learn from him. Yeah, so about a year ago, I took a new role at a think tank called the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. That's new, and we've been starting up over the last year or so. And so we've had a number of programs that we've introduced. One of the the projects that I'm working on there is the launch of a new journal, the Journal of Religion, Culture, and Democracy. So I've just posted a, the opening editorial for this new academic journal that we're, we're publishing, focusing on this kind of Tocquevillian vision of the way that religion forms culture and the right kinds of cultures give rise to democratic institutions and, and self-governance and that sort of, those sorts of things and how all those things interrelate. And so that's one of the key projects that I'm working on. I do have some forthcoming publications. Uh, there's a volume on Adam Smith and theology and the extent to which Smith was informed by a religious and specifically uh, theological and even Presbyterian kind of context in Scotland in the 18th century. That project fits in a way between my two 
formal areas of, of graduate work in the Reformation and in 20th century Protestant theology. So that helps kind of bridge the gap in terms of my interests. I, I, I do a lot of writing on the intersection between economics and theology, so Smith is a natural figure there of interest too. So those are a couple things I'm working on. We, I just helped organize a, a seminar that we did on the Scottish Enlightenment and the rise of liberalism and the religious backgrounds of those sorts of things. So yeah, there's a lot going on besides you know this Kuiper series itself. I'm not leaving Kuiper by any sense now that the series is done. We do have an annual conference that was on hiatus because of the pandemic for the last couple of years, but in early April, the Kuiper Conference is going to start again, and that'll be happening at, at Calvin University and Calvin Seminary here in Grand Rapids. So I'm involved in helping plan that. And so there's, yeah, there's still a lot going on in terms of, you know, now that this series is completed, I think it's going to obviously take a lot of time for us all to work through it again in terms of what it means and, you know, which parts of what we want to spend time with and learn from and apply. So I, I really do hope that it's opened up the possibility for a lot more both say scholarship in terms of secondary work on Kuiper and applying Kuiper in various ways, but also practically speaking, you know, in terms of addressing many of the challenges we face today as Christians and as, you know, evangelicals, what do we do well, with respect to all these kinds of challenges we're facing now? And, and the goal with this series was to, was to help equip us, you know, with some examples and some ways of thinking and some tools to, to do that more faithfully. Well, obviously, we've covered a wide range of topics today, um, and you even see that within Kuiper's works, uh, but even just the nature of these really important questions, whether they're ethics and morality, theology, public theology, politics, social ethics. I mean, there's just a, a large set of issues here that are really important for Christians to be focused on, and that's one of the reasons we do this podcast um, is talking about these things, especially in the digital public square, uh, which is kind of in my way of talking about the newness and kind of the shift in this technological society. Um, so to that end, if folks are a little, if they're interested in digging a little bit deeper on some of the topics we've talked about, um, so obviously outside of this direct series from Lexham on Kuiper, are there other books, whether it's on Kuiper, public theology, ethics, theology, what have you, that you think would be good for folks either starting out on their journey or something that you've just found really helpful in the last couple of years, especially in the midst of your work? Yeah, so on Kuiper, you know, I would say outside of this series, I would start with the Stone Lectures, which was the the main work that was available in English over the last hundred years. That's still probably the best place to start if you just want a short kind of book-length introduction to Kuiper's thinking. And it, with respect to that, the, the Joustra edited volume, you know, that's trying to, to bring those topics into a more contemporary setting, Calvinism for a Secular Age, that's the name of that volume. So those are a couple places to go for Kuiper outside of this series. Obviously, you know, if you've got a particular interest in you know, questions of ecclesiology or, or political thought or something like that, one of these volumes in the series would do well for that. But if you want a kind of a, a primary introduction to Kuiper and Kuiper's thought, the Stone Lectures, are, I think, are still the place to go. And certainly Joustra's volumes is a, a great complement to that. Rich Mao has a, a brief kind of introductory volume called uh, A Short and Personal Introduction to Abraham Kuiper that I would also recommend. It's very accessible and readable. I am working on a brief primer on Kuiper's public theology. That's not out yet, but that's um, a project that you can look forward to um, at some point in the near-ish future. So um, those are things that I would recommend looking for if you wanted to dig in more into Kuiper. Yeah, those are those are some good resources, I think, to get you started that are accessible and are, they're not going to be, say, imposing as a, a couple hundred 
you know, page volume from the series would might be. Yeah. And we'll make sure for listeners sake to one link to all of those resources, including some of your works, as well as the Institute that you're leading. Um, and then for listeners sake too, we also will have a discount code for the collected works from Lexum. Uh, you can go to the show notes, click over to Lexum's website, the code will be auto populated. So you can get a discount on the series, as well as linking back to the interview that we did with Robin Jessica Justra on Calvinism in a secular age, including the talk on the Stone lectures that we had them on the podcast to talk about. So, um, but Dr. Baylor, I really appreciate you, um, the work that you do, especially on this series. It, it really is a beautiful series and congratulations on that completion. Thanks so much, Jason. I really appreciate you having me on and yeah, it's been a great discussion. So thanks a lot. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Baylor and learn more about his work as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. And as a special treat for Digital Public Square listeners, there's a coupon code for the Collected Works in Public Theology by Abraham Kuyper from Lexham Press. Just head on over to the show notes so you can grab that coupon code. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.